Well, good morning. I'm super excited this morning. Um, for all of you here in the room and all those online, we're going to go through a, a familiar text, but we're going to do it maybe in a way possibly we haven't done before. We're in our series, Move, and we're looking at encounters with Jesus. And it's my opinion that the encounter we're going to go through today might be the biggest move of any character in Scripture. So let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for what you've put on me this morning to share. Thank you for what you've revealed to me and that we can have this discussion with your guidance. I pray now that you will guide my thoughts and my words and that only what you intend to be said will be said and that what you intend to be heard will be heard, including myself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning is basically the first 18 chapters of John chapter 3. 18 verses, sorry, that scared you. 18 verses of John chapter 3. I'm using the New English translation for a particular reason with some of the some of the English translations. So you can follow along on the screen, or if you, if you have that on your device or your Bible or your scroll, you can do it in the pews. Now a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Notice as we go through these, the yellow highlights too. We're going to come back to each one. Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound it makes, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus replied, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? I tell you the solemn truth. We speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. If I have told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? One too far? I tell you the solemn truth. Nope, sorry, my mistake. I'm out of sync because I don't have a TV, so you just have to bear with me. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe 
has already been condemned because he, is not, he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Well, we know this story really well, right? And you're probably thinking, hey, didn't we just do this a year ago, almost to the day? What could we possibly do with this text that hasn't been done before? Well, Dr. Cloud, my mentor, friend, and professor, uh, is one of the gentlemen uh, and ladies that have taught me exegesis, which is where you go through the verses and you actually look at what's in them. You actually contemplate the chronology and the, and the history and everything that's packed into what we just read. And I'm not sure we've done a good job of that. If we think about perspective, um, we might say something like this. We might say a lot of what we find in the Bible cannot be understood well, or possibly at all, unless we see it written through the eyes of the ancient person that was writing it, or in this case, Nicodemus, who's hearing it. Two weeks ago, Dan Johnson mentioned perspective as he gathered us around the table, and I jotted it down because it, it was resonating with me for this sermon. And Richard Rohr says it this way, perspective might also be considered a, a synonym with worldview. And a worldview is not what we look at, it's what we look out from or what we look through. So our challenge this morning is going to be reading this text as Nicodemus saw it, as he heard what Jesus was saying and what he should have been thinking about as that conversation was taking place. So first question, what is missing from this text? It's not meant to be a trick question. What we do with this text most of the time is we say, oh, clearly this text is about baptism, but baptism is not present. The word's not there. There's no mention from Jesus to Nicodemus of, you know, we need to be baptized, you need to understand the new covenant in my blood, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to resurrect. None of, none of that chronology-wise would make any sense. So we've got to stop and say, okay, if baptism's not there, but we, we see allusions to it, which we're going to talk about, we're going to unpack, then how, how do we look at this? Well, let's look at a modern-day analogy real quickly. If you think of somebody, and the only person I could come up with that maybe most of the people in here would know, is somebody like Laura Ingalls Wilder on Little House on the Prairie. If you went to Laura Ingalls and said, today, if she was here in Tennessee and she had her trusty horse that she rode to get somewhere, and you said, you need to be in South Texas in four hours, what do you think she'd say? She'd say, well, how is that even possible? Which is what Nicodemus says. He says, Jesus says, are you not the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things. And yet, we're really hard on the Pharisees. Some, deservingly, but Nicodemus, I don't think so. Nicodemus is a, Nicodemus is a Yahweh-fearer. He's a faithful man. He's a teacher of Israel. He's trying. He really is trying in this conversation to understand what Jesus is saying to him. And Jesus basically says, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not know this stuff? Well, he must be, Jesus must be referring to Nicodemus' presumed knowledge of the Old Testament. That's the only thing that makes sense in the context, right? It can't be that Jesus expects Nicodemus to know something that Jesus hasn't even told his closest disciples yet, and, and quite honestly hasn't told Nicodemus. And that alone, if we're really thinking about it, disqualifies baptism. Because if baptism was actually in view here, it would not be the baptism of Jesus that hasn't even been instituted yet. It would be John the Baptist's baptism. And I can assure you that the Pharisees were not lining up to go down and get baptized by John because they're trying to figure out what's going on there. 
So we ask this question then. What is present in the text? And hang on to that Laura Ingalls Wilder trying to go to to Texas in four hours, South Texas, because we're going to come back to it. So what is present in the text? Well, Jesus says, unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's usually where we go and see there's baptism right there. Well, maybe. I mean, yes, from our perspective, but just hold on. Nicodemus doesn't know that, so that must mean something different to Nicodemus in this conversation than what we jump to conclusions and say. Now, what a lot of people do here is they say, okay, let's, let's unpack this and say that uh, what Jesus is saying is that someone has to be born of water, and they go to ambionic fluid, and they say that's the last thing that happens when a, when a baby is being delivered, and so therefore there's the water reference, and then they're a human being. And then they have to be born from spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And they, and they also do one more thing. They couple onto this an individuality, like you have to do this yourself, and not necessarily looking at it in a communal way. Even though the text we just read said all of you and you people. So there's a couple of things there that are problematic. Number one is, obviously, you do need to be alive in order to make these decisions about following Jesus or seeing the kingdom of God, right? That's a given. But if we say something like a requirement is to be born in order to enter the kingdom of God, then what happens to people who are stillborn? What happens to people who are aborted? See, we set up a problem we don't, we don't really think about. That can't be. We can't, we can't tell God who, who he can't admit into the kingdom of heaven because there's a requirement we don't understand. So that, that can't be it. Number two is that it's got to be more than just individual because if it was just individual, Jesus wouldn't have used the term all and he wouldn't have used you people. So there's got to be something else here. Well, if we go back to Ezekiel, which is a text we normally get further down into when we talk about the new covenant, which will come up here in a second. Notice what Ezekiel 36, 24 through 25 says. I will take from, you, from the nations and gather you from all the countries. Then I will bring you to your land I will sprinkle you with pure water, and you will be clean from all your impurities. I will purify you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will take the initiative, and you will obey my statutes and carefully observe my regulations." Then you will live in the land I gave to your fathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will save you from all your uncleanness. See, there's the promise of the new covenant that's in the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have seen. He should have been very familiar with that. So that's one of the things that Jesus is saying, and that new covenant is described with water purifying and a new spirit being inserted. So there's water and spirit that should have resonated with Nicodemus with what Jesus was saying. So what's really happening here? The conversation is not necessarily only about Nicodemus, what Nicodemus must do to enter the kingdom of God. It's a conversation about redefining the people of God. And that's where we have to think about what Nicodemus probably is sitting there thinking at the moment that this conversation is taking place. Jesus' demand that Nicodemus must be born again points to a move in the heart or the core of salvation from Israel to the Messiah in the coming age. All right, so the coming age there, that's that's where chronology is very important. 
This conversation's taking place, and Jesus knows things that are going to take place. Nicodemus doesn't know those things yet, but Jesus is, 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 is allowing him to think through the Scriptures to understand that something's coming. There must be some method that we'll get to here in a minute. So let's go back to Laura Ingalls. Laura Ingalls has to be in the south part of Texas in four hours. She doesn't know about things like airplanes. But if someone was telling her this will be possible in the coming age, how would she know that if, if she had no idea what the method was to get to South Texas in four hours? Same type of thing happening here with Nicodemus. He's listening to Jesus. He's questioning. He's saying, well, how can this be? doesn't make any sense, but there's something coming in the future age that will make it make sense. So let's think about what Nicodemus is thinking. He's thinking believing loyalty was tied to a covenant, whether it be the Sinai covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or both, which basically is saying that those covenants are saying that the defined people of those covenants are the people of God and God's chosen nation called Israel. Now, we know that the Old Testament always planned on including the Gentiles. However, back to the worldview, back to the perspective we're looking at, Nicodemus is living in a worldview in a time where if you're not a Jew, if you're not in, in Israel, well, you're just out of luck. So the, the thought process is, here are these chosen people, and the Old Testament talks about the chosen people of Israel being God's firstborn son. That's the whole, that's the whole challenge that ends up between Pharaoh and Yahweh is the firstborn son of Pharaoh and the firstborn son of the Egyptians versus the firstborn son of God, which is the nation and the people of of Israel. So all this would be going through Nicodemus's head and what Jesus is showing Nicodemus is that thinking of salvation as being a member of Israel is now insufficient. Now that the Messiah is present. Believing loyalty to God is now in Jesus, the Messiah, not in genealogies and family inheritance. God himself has incarnated himself as human that Blake read to us from Philippians 2 this morning, and he's the only human being who's had perfect obedience to the law, to the covenants. And so therefore, that initiative that we read about in in Ezekiel that God was going to take, that's Jesus. That's the initiative. I will come do it because Israel failed to do it. So Jesus is now the linchpin of salvation, no longer a, a birthright. Salvation's identity was in a nation a people, and now it's in the person of Jesus. And so Nicodemus is trying to understand this. So let's just paraphrase something Nicodemus might have been thinking. Wait a minute, wait. If salvation is not connected to national Israel and our Torah, our law-keeping, and our lineage, and our genealogy, and our descendants from Abraham, and well, if it's not linked to that, then that means anybody can have it. If he had a mic, that was where Jesus would have dropped it, right? Because that's exactly what we go to in our passage. Does John 3.16 say, for God so loved Israel? No. It says the good news. I, I contend this is the gospel in two verses. For this is the way that God loved the world, everybody. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Probably the most well-known Bible verse, 
by everybody that's living or watches football games or anything else, right? And, ev- and, and yet, look at how much is packed into this. So we say how. Well, okay, now we're going to get to the methods. In case any of you were ready to throw tomatoes earlier, we're going to get to the how. And we know some of the how because of Acts 2, right? Peter's sermon, who explains all this and then unpacks it all, and then people say, well, what must we do? And he says, well, repent and be baptized, which we'll get to in a minute. But repent does not mean come down and say only that I'm sorry for something. I'm sorry for being born into the family I was born into. I'm sorry I'm not a Jew. I'm sorry I'm not part of Israel. No, that's crazy. We can't, we can't undo who we were born to. Repent means change your mind about salvation. So does everybody get in salvation? Hang on to that question. Look at John 3, just a few verses later, 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, which would have been a a term too Nicodemus would have recognized, right, from Daniel. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's the second thing Nicodemus should have understood from this conversation with Jesus. And if we go to Numbers 21, 8 and 9, we can make some sense out of it. The Lord said to Moses... Make a poisonous snake. Now, some of your translations may not say poisonous, but here's the question. If it wasn't a poisonous snake, they wouldn't have died, right? It had just been bitten, which would have been unfortunate. But it has to be a poisonous snake because it was deadly. Make a poisonous snake, put it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he or she will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole so that if a snake had bitten someone, when they looked at the bronze snake... They lived. All right, I don't know about you, but it took me decades before I had anybody come close to explaining what what that's about. Because, you know, we think snake, we think the garden, we think evil, we think what's going on. Well, some commentators that I have synthesized here, in summary, say the image of the snake was to be a symbol of the curse that the Israelites were experiencing. That these snakes were in in the camp, and they were biting people, and people were dying. And by lifting the snake up on a pole, Moses was indicating that the curse would be drawn away from the people into the snake, and if they looked to it, which was a sign of faith, they would, uh, they would not be harmed. Jesus alluded to the snake and used it as an illustration of his own mission. He would become the curse and be lifted up so that people who looked by faith to Jesus would live, John three fourteen. Okay, so here's the question. This is where some people also sometimes, unfortunately, derail. They say, well, that sounds like because of John 3.16, we just tell everybody that. They believe, everything's great, everyone's saved, right? Universalism. No one, no one has anything else they have to do. See, it's much bigger than that. This invitation from Jesus to Nicodemus is huge. Look at Matthew 19.24 and 25. Jesus says, again, I say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples were greatly astonished when they heard this, and they said, then who can be saved? All right, two interesting things here. One is, there, in Jesus' time, there was no little gate that someone's thinking of right now that was, you know, if your camel's buttered up enough and it's small enough and it's not packed too much and he can squeeze his fat body through there, he just might get in. Nope, no such gate. That happened much Later, That was not what's going on here because that would make it sound like there's a way, there's a human way that maybe we can get in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if that's not it and it's an impossibility, why do the disciples, apostles in this case, say, well, then who can be saved? Well, think about something that our brother Les says a lot. 
He prays God's richest blessings on people. What do you think the most richest blessing is in this time, in this context, in this worldview? It's being a child of Israel, right? It's being born into Israel. Because if you're born into Israel, you're blessed, you're rich, because you're in the right group. Well, when they hear that, and they're thinking of it not money, they're thinking of it as blessing, and they're saying, well, okay, if everybody's disqualified and it's impossible, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, this is impossible for mere humans, but for God, all things are possible. Now, that goes back to him saying in Ezekiel, Yahweh saying that he will take the initiative and he will make something happen because the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, his firstborn son didn't get it done. So Jesus comes and he makes it possible because he is, in fact, God. All right, so now the next step of how we've repented, we're thinking about salvation differently, what do we do? Well, baptism, but yet chronologically speaking, we still have to keep looking at this from Nicodemus's point of view. What has to happen at this point in the narrative is that Jesus has just come from being baptized in chapter 2 of, actually into chapter 1 of, of John. And he has not yet mentioned his baptism, but we know ultimately that the gospel is comprised of two parts, right? The part that God does, the initiative, is Jesus has to go to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which he pleads with the Father if there's another way, you know, let, let some other way come. And because of what he does, we are then baptized into Christ, just like Jesus was baptized. So here comes the third thing that Nicodemus might have been able to pick up on. If we go to Mark 1, and we look at what Mark says as Jesus' baptism, he says, and just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now this is interesting. In the Greek, splitting apart is schizo, which sounds like schizo person, right? Like two, two things, right? Because it's splitting it apart. So schizo means to split apart. And pneuma, as, as Les mentioned last week, is the word for the Spirit. And we're pretty familiar with that. Well, if we go to the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is the Old Testament in Greek, lo and behold, those two words show up. In Exodus 14, 21 through 22, Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea, and the Lord drove the sea, schizo, apart, by a strong east pneuma, spirit, wind, all that night. And he made the sea into dry land, and the water was divided. So the Israelites went through the middle of the sea on dry ground, and the water forming a wall for them on their left and on their right. See, God used Moses to birth the nation of Israel by rescuing them through the water that was schizoed on both sides by the power of the Spirit. And at Jesus' baptism... The heavens are schizoed, separated. The Spirit comes down, rests on him, as David White read for us this morning. And then the Hebrew writer says that Jesus is even greater than Moses. Some people refer to Jesus as the new Moses or the second Moses. But the Hebrew writer says greater than Moses. So what would be greater than birthing a nation? It would be rebirthing the chosen people of God who are now rescued in the birth of Christ. And then we get something very interesting. We say, okay, well, so far you haven't really 
I don't know, maybe, maybe you're tracking along just fine. It's not really what the point of this is, but maybe so far nothing has really jumped out yet. Um, even though all of this should have been in Nicodemus' mind while Jesus was discussing these things with him. Look at how important being in the new people of God community is. I don't have all of this text up there, but in John 19, later in the same gospel, 25 through 27, now standing beside Jesus' cross, there's a group of people, right? And there's Mary, his mother, and there's John. And Jesus said to his mother, woman, look, here is your son. He then said to his disciple, look, here is your mother. And from that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. Have you ever wondered why he doesn't choose one of his birthright brothers to do that. John's not related to Jesus. But Jesus chooses the family of faith to care for his believing mother rather than James or Jude or some other physical relative. And we shouldn't underplay this because that shows that when you transfer, like Paul says, we've already transferred into citizenship and into the kingdom, that is more family that is more the eternal people of God than maybe even your own blood relatives if they haven't yet transferred. Because at this point, James and Jude don't believe. So, what's really happening here? The kingdom of God is being defined, which is what Jesus came to preach and teach. We haven't, Nicodemus doesn't know the how, the method yet. But the eternal family of God is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Abba, Father, like Les went over two or three weeks ago. The reason we can say, Father, is because we're now in the family, thanks to Jesus, that God is the head of, that God is the Father of. And interestingly enough, even right there, we can do another little interesting tangent, and that is that the immaculate conception of Jesus by the Father also shows that just like the birth of a nation, when God chose his people and he split the Red Sea, and they went through and came out on the other side, and then that set up what was supposed to happen for the whole world, for all the nations. That was, an, that was a miraculous thing that happened to birth that nation. He heard them. He heard their distress calls. He miraculously split the sea through the power of the Spirit. They were birthed a nation. Then Jesus is birthed immaculately, miraculously from the Father, and births the new nation, the new people of God, made up of believing disciples of Jesus that are chosen by God. So, let me back up before I go to that. We are born of water and spirit, and we're out from under the curse. That's what Nicodemus should have heard. Jesus is the only way, and he leads to truth, and ultimately he leads to true life. And Paul says, like I referenced earlier, we've already transferred to this. We are there now. We don't have to wait until some point in the future when airplanes or other things become available. We, we are actually in that chosen people of God, that new Israel, that new nation, that eternal family right now. And that's why I always say that the church is not a place, it's not a time, and it's not a set of activities. It's the chosen people of God. And if we go back to the beginning of John's gospel, he already had stated it for us very clearly. In verses 12 and 13, he says, but to all who have received him, Christ, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. 
Children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. That's what Nicodemus should have been able to put together. Not necessarily the how yet, because he didn't understand that. That, That's going to be multiple chapters further down. But he should have seen these things from the Old Testament, and he should have understood that all those predictions and all those prophecies and all those promises from God to Abraham and to the nation of Israel were sitting right in front of him. So if you know me, you know one thing. You know I don't believe in coincidence. This lesson was supposed to be three weeks ago, but due to some other things in scheduling, it got changed. And tonight at 5 o'clock, we're watching The Chosen Season 1, Episode 4, which is the dramatization of what we've just been through. And I ask that if you can, even if you can't be here, watch it. Because the conversation that takes place between Nicodemus and Jesus brings scripture to life, maybe like we've never thought of it before. And the, the loving tone that Jesus speaks with him. You know, we, we oftentimes read this text and we see things like, well, well, Jesus must have been really, really put out that Nicodemus didn't know this. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. I don't think that's how he said it. I think he was simply pointing to the fact that Nicodemus was a product of religion and a product of his time and his worldview and that the information was always right there in the scriptures that he loved so much and knew so well to understand what Jesus was saying. So I hope you'll think about joining us for that tonight. I'd like to bookend us with prayer, just a simple prayer that sort of wraps up this lesson. So if you would, just bow with me. Interrupt our lives, Father. Move us like you moved Nicodemus. From religion as a mere belief to the recognition of inclusion in your internal family, thanks to Jesus the Christ. May we invite everyone you place in our path to become true brothers and sisters for eternity, not only of us, but most importantly of Jesus. I pray that you will empower us with your spirit to have Christian courage to go out and make disciples, not telling people a list of things they have to do, but inviting them to, to as the scriptures tell us, the... Uh, the, the eternity free pass of, of no condemnation. Um, if we believe in your son and if we show them what believing in your son is an invitation to, it's an invitation to life even now and more fully as we continue to transform into his image through the power of your spirit guiding us and molding us and shaping us. And I pray that today as we go out thinking about John three sixteen and 17, we'll understand that that actually is the gospel encapsulated in two, two verses. And we thank Jesus for being the obedient servant, being the new Israel, and inviting us into something that we would have had no other way. And it was a complete impossibility to ever join without him. Thank you, Jesus. We pray through your name. Amen.